Can I ask you about the fullbacks in particular? It was an area of concern last year I looked at that thought they, they never looked quite comfortable Tottenham with that. But the goal in particular come from Udogi in midfield and run it. Is there some kind of trigger you use it? Because he's in midfield, the ball comes out to Perisic and he just goes. It almost seems like they've been playing together forever. He went straight away and attacked the space. They look like they're playing with freedom. Is that something you work with? I'm not trying to get your secrets. No, no, no. No, <laughs> no see, I'm just copying Pep, mate. And welcome to the Sound of Football podcast. I'm Graham Sibley, and as ever, I'm joined by Jan Bilton. Hello. And Terry DeFallon. Hello. It's Monday night, and it's a very special Monday night, actually, because we've all got together, and it's Ballon d'Or night! Yay! Yay. Well, yes, of course it's Ballon d'Or night, but we don't celebrate Ballon d'Or night here, do we? Well, what we actually celebrate is Terry's birthday. Happy birthday, Terry. Thank you. Happy birthday, Terry. Thank you very much. I don't remember recording many podcasts on my birthday. I suppose I must have done at some point, statistically speaking. You have recorded a lot of podcasts. I have. And I must have recorded some on my birthday in the past. There must have been a birthday in the past on a Monday in the last... How many years have we been doing this thing now? Very, very many. Okay. Well, anyway, let's just take that as read. Let's not make this about me. Thank you very much for your birthday wishes. It was great to have you here and to be able to share your birthday by recording our 550th numbered episode <laughs> of Num- The Sound of Football. <laughs> numbered episode. Not our 550th episode, <laughs> as long-time listeners will know. Yes. I'm not going to explain that again. Okay, just for, for, for any new listeners, just think of it as our 550th episode. That's fine. Everyone will be happy. There's only a certain number of people who actually care how many episodes we've actually done. And <laughs> mainly me. And you can count them in one hand. <laughs> yeah, you can count them on one finger. Me. <laughs> uh, yes. So, yeah, it's our 550th episode. The big numbers just keep on rolling on, aren't they? And this is, there's a kind of parity there. 550 and, uh, oh, well, let's not go into how old Terry actually is. But... <laughs> yeah, no, 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 that's fine. I am 55 today, so yes, and episode 550. So it, it's glorious. It's written in the stars. I feel truly blessed. But it, it's also written in my little notepad here as well. Helpful. And plenty of other things in there. So we are going to run down this list of things to talk about because I was thinking, like, what should we talk about this week? And I thought, well, I wonder what we were talking about this time last year. But this time last year... All we were talking about was there was actually like a World Cup going to happen. And so it sort of distorted everything that we would normally talk about at this time of year. But of course, we don't have that. We're just rolling on. And we've got obviously Ballon d'Or, but obviously we don't talk about Ballon d'Or because Ballon d'Or is rubbish, isn't it, Terry? Yes, individual awards, generally speaking, are rubbish. And um, we shouldn't really be talking about them. We shouldn't give them. There's plenty of other places where people can talk about Ballon d'Ors. Uh, And this is not traditionally the kind of forum where we talk about that because we just don't hold with individual awards. Well, no, we don't, do we? And yeah, the fact is also as well is that they haven't actually handed it out yet. So we can't really 
give much of a reaction on on the prize giving when it's still about an hour away. No, uh, but I think we give it a good stab because <laughs> as, as far as I'm aware, in fact, I was told by my son on the, on the way down to, to come and record this was that they're going to give it to Messi. Doesn't he play in America now? And I was like, yeah, but he did win the World Cup. He went, yeah, but that was last year. And I went, well, maybe it's a World Cup thing. I don't know. It does feel a bit silly when he's playing in a lesser league. It'd be like giving it to Jordan Henderson, for example. Wouldn't it? Is that the same Jordan Henderson that played in front of a crowd of 629 the other evening? Really? In the Saudi Pro League. Yeah, they're packing him in, apparently. Well, you, I mean, the lad made the right move. No one can argue against that. <laughs> we'll discuss that later. We'll come back onto the Ballon d'Or and we'll see if we can come up with a few ideas as to why they're giving it to Messi again. But what we really should be doing is catching up on what happened at the weekend because there was loads of football. There always is. There was international break in uh, women's football as well. More Nations League action, which uh, which I, I really enjoyed. And there's more tomorrow night. That Nations League, incidentally, uh, means that a lot of the, the players who are there won't be attending the Ballon d'Or because they're like busy preparing for games. So a bit of a faux pas on the organisers of the Ballon d'Or. If you want to make it a mixed event, do it at a time when everyone could turn up, yeah? Mm. Mm. Yeah. Afterthoughts, isn't it, Terry? Yeah, it certainly seems to be something of an afterthought. Uh, It is difficult to schedule the international calendar, to schedule these things. I do, I guess it probably is quite hard, but it's a terrible look, frankly, that they couldn't make this work. They're all grown men. Maybe that's part of the problem. Well, some more good news did come out today, though. And that was from FIFA. Uh, it's good news coming from FIFA. You don't get a lot of that. Yes, I know. I know, Jan. Yes. Big surprise on your face. But that was the uh, news that Rubiales has been banned for three years from football by FIFA. So he was he was on a six-month suspension. Now it's, it's now been turned into three years. That's got to be good news, isn't it? Yes, absolutely the right decision. Uh, we've talked at length about uh, Rubiales and, and his vile behaviour. Um, he was caught out. It's just a shame it took this long to get this far, but he got his just desserts. So let's have a talk about the weekend action. And Terry, Germany, bonkers weekend. And, and one in the eye, I think, for people who like to say, well, the PGMOL just don't know how to use VAR. It works perfectly well in Europe. Does it work perfectly well in Europe? It, it, no, it doesn't. It doesn't work perfectly well in Europe. There's there's always a fair smattering of VAR chaos going on. There was chaos yesterday, but I have to say, and I will say this right from the outset, that the VAR chaos contributed to the value of this game. <laughs> I'm talking about Eintracht Frankfurt 3, Borussia Dortmund 3, a fantastic game of football. It was. Frankfurt went 2-0 up and Dortmund had to fight back to get to 2-2, Frankfurt went 3-2, and then Dortmund managed to get an equaliser. Absolutely brilliant game of football with plenty of VAR incident as well. But it was a really, really good game of football. And, and if anything, the VAR actually enhanced it. And I think that's one of the first instances I can say where it was all part of the fun and hijinks. I might have felt differently as a Dortmund guy had the result been different. But I don't know. I mean, it was really was a really, really good game of football. And Dortmund are very, very pleased because Frankfurt haven't lost at home for over a year. So it's a tough place to go, as they say. But yes, there was some VAR shenanigans. Shall I um, pray see the shenanigans? Please do. Please do. 
All right. So it, it began with a handball from um, Borussia Dortmund's Marius Wolf. Uh, I think it's Mamouche who's put in the who Mamouche was basically doing pretty much everything in this game. Uh, he was even making the tea in this game. That's how much he was. He had a fantastic game. He he heads the ball towards Wolf. Wolf is trying to clear the ball, sort of like in midair. You know how it is, listeners. We've seen it all before. His arms are out in a, and the ball hits his arm. And the ball's not travelling towards the net, in my opinion, and also it's a perfectly natural position. There was an independent referee on Bilt who felt the same way the following day. said, look, this is arm is outstretched it clearly hits the arm but it's not a natural position but it's given and we've seen this before didn't we we saw this a couple of weeks ago Arsenal v Chelsea we've seen it probably elsewhere but I remember specifically Arsenal v Chelsea as well very similar and it's the same thing yeah it's like just because your arms are outstretched like that doesn't mean it's an unnatural position you cannot control your leap you cannot gain any height if you keep your arms down by your side you just end up looking stupid and you end up getting yelled at by your coach for showing poor technique when it comes to to, to that sort of thing so I, I genuinely don't understand it anyway breath gives it and it's one nil uh, frankfurt uh, then the uh, the next incident was not long afterwards actually and that was alexander meyer the dortmund goalkeeper and again on marmouche <laughs> And for me, for all the world, I mean, he's, he's gone to get the ball. He's reached out. He's clipped Mamouche. Over he goes. It's got to be a penalty, right? Definitely. Goes to the VAR, checks it. I'm sitting there going, oh, bloody hell. It's 2-0 by this point. And you're thinking, this is it. This is the end. No, doesn't give the penalty. You think, well, anyway, it's a Dortmund guy. You think, well, all right, fair enough. I'll take that. Move on. Um, but, I mean, just ridiculous. And then finally, towards the end of the game, when it's 3-3, there's a tug on the shirt in the penalty area is not even looked at it's not even looked at and we do know that shirt tugging is something that they're trying to get much much hotter on as a consequence there was a huge brouhaha afterwards and one and the spokesman of the Eintracht Frankfurt board said that in his opinion and I'm assuming he's speaking on behalf of the board as well that there should be he called for a partial removal of VAR from the Bundesliga he said to restrict it to only a few things, penalty calls. And obviously he said goal line technology, which is obviously technically not part of VAR. But I think I know where, where he's coming from. And saying that he didn't feel as if they were getting good value out of it. And that there was a danger that it was actually going to change the game to a point where it was no longer an entertaining game. It was not. And he's got no authority mm. whatsoever. He says he's going to write to the DFB and, and say this is what they should do. But that's basically the end of it. So... But it is an interesting thing to come out and say, I think. And I wonder whether or not we'll see, whether or not that gains any momentum, whether there'll be a, a drive. Because there's plenty of people in Germany, I think, who would happily see the money go somewhere else. Yeah, it raises an interesting point. Who should decide whether or not a league has VAR and who doesn't? Should it be a consensus of the league or a majority of the teams involved? Or should it just be the referees to say, no, you should have this. We need to have this as a standard for the game. Who should be the ones to decide? Should it be the FAs? That's a good point, because if it was the FAs, then you would imagine they'd implemented at every level possible to implement it at. Um, Which, of course, as we've argued before and pointed out before, it doesn't really happen. So that sounds sensible. There just needs to be a sensible call on it. It's very interesting that you're getting an official, and I appreciate Terry, you're saying he's not one with with much of a portfolio, but at least someone is saying it in one of the top leagues in the world. 
But as for who should be making the decision, I mean, it's different, I suppose, in the in the UK with the Premier League, because the Premier League's kind of a closed shop, isn't it? But the FA runs the entire show, if you like. So it makes sense that it's them. But I think that if you're going to do it, you have to move it out into other divisions. And if you look at the championship, there's a lot at stake in the championship. So um, why shouldn't it be there? Again, it's created a two-tier system, which needs to be addressed uh, regardless. Yeah, I was reading last week as well, Bibi Stenhouse, who is in charge of the development of the women's game at the PGMOL. She was mentioning about how they were going to bring it into the WSL soon. They're looking at it. And now this is actually the PGMOL who seem to be leading on bringing this in. Um, so I don't know how that's working, whether or not it's because it's still tied in with the FA, I suppose, and, and whether or not they want it to be there because certain managers are calling for it and there are quite a few managers who are calling for it but when you think about the cost of it if it was even a var light like they've got up in scotland if you had that with goal line technology it would eat up 20 percent of their tv deal their brand new tv deal would just go straight into the pockets of whoever is providing var that does not sound like a worthwhile investment to me for a, a game that's on the grow I would suspect at least a thousand and one other things that money needs to be spent on before VAR when it comes to the women's game. Standards needs to be raised in the women's game across the board. There's there's any number of things you can think of just by looking at a women's game and saying you can improve that, you can change that, you can do something about that. All of this stuff would require money. That needs to be, I mean, I mean, women's game standard is not at a level where it could really, I think, afford the luxury of VAR. And I would have to describe VAR as an absolute luxury. You know, I mean, there's a million things that they could be doing instead with that money. It would be disappointing if it's just because there are prominent coaches in the WSL and in the international game who are calling for it. It's a demonstration of just how some people's priority are completely out of whack. And I hate to say it, I suspect they're acting in their own self-interests because they want to see the WSL professionalise in such a way as to maybe make them think that at some point there might be an opportunities in the men's game for them. I'm not at all happy with that. I'm concerned that perhaps there might be some coaches who might be thinking we want VAR because... They have it in the Premier League and and I want to work in the Premier League one day. Oh, maybe. Maybe that is the case. I'm just mindful of not turning this into another VAR chat because it could easily happen. And yeah, uh, yeah, we have spoken about VAR a lot on this podcast and our thoughts are clear on it. But I think it's worthwhile having conversations like this from the weekend as well. We, We saw an incident where... We see it every weekend. The um, the guy from ESPN, Dale Johnson, writes his weekly article to go through all the incidents over the weekend that VAR should or shouldn't have picked out and explains why they were perfectly good decisions most of the time and also why they were howlers. But it just seems to me that because he's been doing this for a few years now and it just seems to be one of the most pointless exercises I think I can imagine. I get it myself when I end up talking about decisions over the weekend when we come on here. You just can't escape that chat. That chat's everywhere. And it's what was dominating the half-time chat in the Manchester derby yesterday. The discourse online was all about, oh my God, what a ridiculous penalty. City get a soft penalty again. Um, What the hell is VAR doing intervening there? That should never be an overturn there. I've just flicked over from watching one game 
where VAR had had a, a big effect, the Frankfurt Dortmund game, switched straight over to the Manchester Derby, which was happening, well, that first half was happening at the same time as the second half in Frankfurt. And that penalty, to me, just sort of summed up the problem with the discourse about decisions, which is just the fact that it's a foul. It's, there's no two ways about it. But you can also see how, one, it should probably have been given by the referee. It maybe shouldn't have been given by the referee. It should have been overturned by VAR. Or it shouldn't have been turned over by VAR. All of we, we live in a time where all four of those, if all four, any one of those four had happened, you'd have had people saying, well, yeah, that's how it should have been. Or that's not how it should have been. So it's no wonder we get tied up in, in knots about the decisions that are actually being made. For my money, it was a stick-on penalty. The incident itself, you've got Hoyland and Stones. They are grappling. And this is what most people say. Oh, you see that 10 times a match. You'll be handing out penalties like sweets if you call that one a penalty. But Rodri is unmarked, runs through. Hoyland pushes away Stones, wraps his arm around Rodri's midriff and pulls him back. Now, to me, that's definitely a penalty and probably should have been a yellow card as well. But yeah, there you go. Stick on for me. Jan, what did you make of the match yesterday? Did the refereeing discourse spoil it for you? Or did you just think, City won it fair and square anyway. They were much the better team. Yeah, well, they were. And I mean, that could have spoiled it. But to be honest with you, I agree with you, Graham. I thought um, Hoyland had his arm around him. This wasn't just a shirt pull where the, uh, the player going through exaggerated a fall. He whipped him round and caused him to fall. So that was a bang on penalty and not controversial whatsoever. So there you go. Uh, bit of a dull opinion, um, but um, the the game itself, I mean, just shows how much work Manchester United have got to do when they've got. And I'm going to talk about Johnny Evans for a second here. I just want to point out that he's been a fantastic servant for Manchester United before, and he did well at Leicester, and he was always very good at Sunderland when we had him on loan as well. However, starting now at you know 500 years old as he is with Maguire next to him. And just to also further caveat that that I think a lot of the criticism that Maguire gets is unfair. However, you've got those two as your central defensive pairing against the might that Manchester City can throw against them. You know, that's not a world-class defence and it's not going to hold out a world-class attack. And that's what it was facing. I mean, Silva made Manchester United look like children. I mean, he was just toying with them the whole game. I was pleased to see he got man of the match. Um, at least from the UK broadcaster, because he was just, he was unstoppable. I think it was very much men against boys. And I think Manchester United, Bruno Fernandes was losing his temper towards the end. When Anthony came on, he came on like he'd already lost his temper. It was a fine win for City. United were never really in it. A lot's got to change there. And I suspect it, it will soon. I was quite amused by Anthony's intervention. I thought you've just come on here just to spoil for a fight. And I love the way that Jeremy Doku just instantly knew exactly which buttons to press <laughs> with Anthony. I mean, yeah. really unprofessional. I've got to be honest with you. Jeremy, uh, not Jeremy Doku. That was actually totally 100% oh, yeah, professional. Yeah. But Anthony was just like massively unprofessional. And you've got to look to the coach and wonder what on earth you're doing sending a guy. He's clearly... You know, I mean, we don't have the benefit of, we don't know the guy, but you only have to look at the way he's behaving and thinking he's not ready to play. This kid's not ready to play. So, you know, we know there's stuff going on in his personal life that we know we won't go into, but there is. He's clearly not in, a, in the right frame of mind. So he shouldn't be even be on the pitch. 
And it's just a measure of how up against it, I think, Ten Hag is, is that he's playing him. I wish I could offer some kind of discord in terms of the penalty shout, Graham, but you're absolutely right. If I was to show some empathy with Man United fans, I think if it was happening to my club, I probably might go down the road of, oh, you've seen them things a million times. But in fairness, in recent times, we have seen referees saying that they want to cut back on that kind of thing happening. And for me, it was actually clear and obvious as well. So I think, you know, it's the correct use of VAR, I mean, Ten Hag said after the game, well, that was the goal that sort of that changed the game. I don't think so. I think that's a kind of thing a manager would say to get some of the heat off of there. That looked like a really thoroughly professional and really good performance, I thought, from City. And, you know, for all of the complaints you might have about the penalty and stuff like that, there's nothing that you can say about leaving Haaland, you know, completely open at the far post. Any kind of dubious decision or controversial decision or any kind of controversy you want to make up for the referee, that's nothing by comparison to the defensive dereliction uh, of leaving, you know, the best striker in the world free at the far post. There's just just no excuse for that. (laughs) As well, it wasn't if United hadn't been warned about that because he was in a virtually identical situation at the end of the first half. And it took a wonder save from Anana to keep the ball out of the net. And it happened again, and this time he wasn't so lucky at keeping it out. Managers are always going to try to control the narrative after a game, aren't they? But yeah, there are obvious mistakes going on there at United. And Ten Hag doesn't look comfortable at the club. He's got lots of injury problems as well, hasn't he? So, I mean, the fact that he's playing Maguire and, and Evans, it, it, this is seriously suboptimal. There's this whole business with Jaden Sancho as well. The guy's effectively no longer their player. So he does have some serious selection problems. I, it's interesting what you say, Jan. You, you feel that things are going to sort of like change again fairly soon. But I do wonder what they can do. I mean, I don't know how many more managers there are left of that caliber, if you want to call it that, that would be interested in the Man United job. I think that their ownership situation is completely unresolved as well. It would, or rather, it is resolved. It's just it's resolved to no one's satisfaction. I think the only thing Man United can really do is stick with Ten Hag, frankly, for as long as the guy wants it, because I don't really feel that they can do any better. And he is a proven winning coach in a long line of winning coaches who's gone to Old Trafford and had his reputation trashed. You know, if any club can teach us the benefit of sticking with a manager, it should be Manchester United. Um, so the, the right thing for to, to do is we put him in, uh, to, to leave him in place. He's just been dealt a really bad hand of late, hasn't he? With the, the Greenwood thing, um, the, the Sancho thing, the, as you mentioned as well, stuff with Anthony as well, and the ownership potentially changing or not. So it's a difficult time to be the coach there. But you're right, who, who else is going to go there apart from Josie? Well, I was thinking, well, I'm sure they can pick a left field choice out there. I mean, I wonder who, who the, the most recent winners of the Europa Conference League have been. <laughs> Maybe they can take a, a young upcoming manager from the winners of that competition and see how he gets on. Or the Europa League, of course, because there's uh, Jose M- Luis Mendilibar, who's recently been sacked by Sevilla. Who, who's, he's, so he's clear, he's in the open. You could totally get him in. So, I mean, like Conte is sort of like out in the open at the moment, isn't he? Right? I mean, like he'd take that job because he's a mercenary and he'll, he'll do anything. You know, the, money, the money's right. And he may even whip him into some kind of recognisable shape. 
um, for a short while, but you feel that the problems run deeper than the coach. That's the problem, isn't it? Yeah, I, mean, I think that's half the problem, though, isn't it? It's, it's because the managers that would be lined up because they sound like good ideas are ones that just don't fit in with what people think is the ethos of Man United. Because like Allegri, Allegri could go and do a job at United, but they don't want to see his bank of four and a bank of five sat with one guy just roaming around up front. They want to see the whole mm. midfield attacking as one unit, and yeah, they don't play like that. Allegri certainly doesn't play like that. Mm. But you know, it's just another Mourinho. That's how they'd see it, and the same would be true with Conte, wouldn't it? Totally. Yeah. I mean, that sort of sort of moderately stereotypical, dare I say, kind of Serie A approach or Mourinho, not necessarily from that, but he he's done his best work in that league. Yeah. They could look at trying to get Ange away from Tottenham. They're both basket case football clubs, but Postacoglu has been actually been given backing. He's been given quite a lot of money in the transfer market to bring in the players that he wants. He might be able to go in there, but you feel that the worry is, is that the dressing room culture in there is so toxic by now. That, that no one can turn it around. No one. There isn't. There isn't a coach on the planet who can turn it around. But I think that's the worry. If I was a Man United fan, I'd worry that no one is coming to save them. This requires complete destruction of the club's infrastructure and then reassembly. Mm. You know, and that takes time, and they don't have time. No, I would say that it can work reasonably quickly as well. I think if you look at Arsenal, where they were five years ago and where they are now, the period that we had with Unai Emery was unsatisfactory, but he did take us to a Europa League final. Um, right, We got hammered by Chelsea, but he did take us that far. But there does seem to be a fundamental shift now with Arteta there, and I think it's, it's, more, it's not just Arteta, it's the whole thing at the club has changed. The toxicity that was there for the latter stage of, of Wenger's era does seem to have gone. How far it's gone is anyone's guess because no club is more than a few games away from being in crisis again. And I'm sure Arteta is more than aware of that. And so is, is Ange. I mean, Ange will know that being manager of the month for August and September is nothing at Tottenham. No one is too far away from a crisis, are they, Yeah. No, they're not. And the Spurs thing's interesting as well because they're doing so well. I'm wondering whether something has changed there because it just feels like Postacoglu's got them playing with such freedom and they haven't had in previous seasons and it felt like, you know, whatever was happening above them was was kind of flowing down and they just they just seem to be doing really well. But you're right, the acid test is that he loses three games in a League Cup game at Stoke or something like that, you know. Then then just see what happens there and whether the old ways return. They've had a clear out, haven't they? Because the sporting yeah. director got, got yeah. done, so he's, he's yeah, out. So, so there has been a clear out at the top, to be fair, mm. which maybe has, has allowed Ange a, a bit more licence than, than he might have ordinarily expected. And also given them perhaps a different outlook on their recruitment as well. There does seem to have been an improvement as far as that's concerned, of hearing good noises about Ange's philosophy when it comes to recruitment. Well, I suppose that does make it easier, like, buying who fits rather than who you can get which obviously is i know it's a it's a a bit of a trope now in modern football but it does seem to work doesn't it and it also illustrates how difficult it is as well because i mean and i mean and we're getting massively ahead of ourselves here because Mm. i I think largely because andy's just such a ridiculously popular man yeah tremendously great value great guy by all accounts just a really great human being and plays a brand of football that plays into Tottenham's 
impression of itself as a football club and as a football team, irrespective of the reality. That's the impression that it has of itself. And how many coaches like that exist that almost appear to be tailor-made? I mean, he's come in at the right time of his career. He's had a great run up in Scotland with Celtic. He's had a great career overseas, international coach. He's coached all over all over the world. He's coming. He's 58 years old. He's got a clear idea about what he wants to play. And he's probably, when he spent an awful lot of time probably up there in Glasgow in his, and years before, watching the Premier League, watching Spurs, watching other things, looking at the kind of players, saying, you know, I know what this kind of, I know what they need. They need this guy. And he's had a wish list. He's been able to go down. And he's had a pliant ownership. We've gone, yeah, all right, and you can have them. None of these are like ridiculously expensive. We can do that. You can have them. And it's just clicked. Yeah. And that you, that just doesn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> that intersection. I mean, that kind of timing just doesn't happen very often. And that's what Man United desperately need right now. But they don't have it because they'll never get it. Because even if they find the right coach, they're still a I'm sorry, but they're still a shit football club. You know, yeah. mm. that's not going to change. They're not going to be sufficiently flexible. Like the time when Levy, to his credit, when it was all going wrong with Juan de Ranos, he just said, just, just like get rid of this guy and then just like got Harry Redknapp and said, look, just do what you need to do. Yeah. You know, that's the famous season of the Down the Bear Bones, only had two points when I arrived, and the bottle of ketchup, you know, in the dressing room. And having that flexibility to go, yeah. I mean, because at least the guy gives a shit about his football club, but you feel that there are enough people in powerful places in Man United that do not care about Manchester United sufficiently to be able to do something like that. And I think that that's where their downfall is coming from. I mean, I think it could get far worse for Manchester United if they're not careful. Hmm. Their stadium's falling apart. They have essentially absentee owners. They're only interested in gouging as much money out of that club as possible. It could go seriously wrong for Manchester United. And we could be talking lower mid-table, even the unthinkable. It's happened before. Yeah, it couldn't happen again, though, could it? Could it? Well, I mean, I don't know. I mean, like you've got to look across Europe at the moment. Ajax, bottom of the Eredivisie. Lyon, yeah, they're at the bottom of Ligue 1. Absolutely hopeless clubs at the moment. Do not look like they're going to dig their way out of those problems anytime soon. And you only look at the Bundesliga. You see the clubs, the big clubs, the big clubs that were challenging for European prizes just a few seasons earlier, now mm-hmm. languishing in the second tier. Clubs like Hamburg yeah. and Schalke. And Schalke. Yeah. And Schalke. And Schalke. So I'm, just, I'm just saying that more than a few times, just to, <laughs> just to head that up. Yeah, Schalke could be in the Dritte Liga next season. <clears throat> I mean, yeah, that would be terrible for football. Uh, and we've seen obviously yeah we've seen big clubs go down to the third tier over here haven't we We have the biggest you've seen it happen obviously you talked about Sunderland but you've seen Leeds United who were were, were bigger much more recently than Sunderland were so um, it's absolutely possible I think it's unlikely but Preston North End, Sunderland and Aston Villa aren't winning the league like they used to win all those years ago Um, so you know things do change you know, said before, well, we've said before that, you know, Man United are still getting over the Ferguson era. Yeah. Uh, the long view of, of history will be that this is part of that same period. It's just a fallout from that. Do you think, Jan, that Tottenham's lack of actually winning stuff, they've been successful at getting to European places, many Champions League qualifications, but do you think the lack of silverware has helped them in transition after Kane? The fact that their best player goes and he's 
tearing up trees over in, in the Bundesliga as well. So it's not as if like he was past it. He's still got it in him. But for them, it, it's we didn't win anything with him here. So we may as well go forward with the guys we've got. And that takes the pressure off new guys coming in, do you think? To a point, I think that having that lack of success over recent years and having one of the best strikers in the world playing for you has led to some of the capricious nature of the way the decisions have been made there. It's been all over the place. I was thinking, actually, as we were talking, I think probably the best thing they did was let Harry Kane go because they let go of that. Well, we've got this great player. We've got to win something with him. But actually, to be fair, it was unfair on both parties. You can see the immediate effect of, of Kane leaving. One of one of he's just one of the aspects of that. But him staying there all that time and being kept there all that time because there was wrangles between him and, and the owners uh, before that. You know, he could have been out doing what he's doing in Germany years ago, couldn't he? Hmm. That's held him back, and you know, maybe he lost a few years doing some really good stuff and winning some stuff, which he, he obviously couldn't do at Spurs. However, they've shed that now, um, invested wisely. Um, bringing in Madison, holding on to Son, getting a, a tune out of Richarlison. I, I know we talked to you the week about not scoring many goals, but he's certainly contributing on the pitch without a shadow of a doubt. Um, so, you know, I think that the Kane move is a, is a watershed for them and they can actually, as you say, relax and go, well, look, we, we have to start again. That's the end of that era. Um, let's crack on and do, try and do something different. And they, and they clearly are, so it's good. I think it's quite interesting what's happening with Kane over in Germany um, because although, I mean, he is, as you say, Graham, he's putting up the trees. He scored an absolute worldie from the defensive half, a classic Beckham strike against Darmstadt in that game. And I think he's been pretty amazing while he's been there. I, I'm sure people will say, oh, well, Farmers League. But the interesting thing about what's going on with Harry Kane is that I, he may only get one or one and a half seasons at this because there's a guy who is basically his understudy, who comes on, you know, usually replaces him, called Matisse Tell, who's at a Bayern Munich, 19-year-old striker. And he's phenomenal and usually ends up scoring those kind of end-of-the-game goals that Bayern get. Uh, he will be challenging Kane for that spot quite soon. So I wouldn't be surprised if Kane actually does come back after a couple of seasons. Uh, it would be ironic, of course, as well, if Bayer Leverkusen actually do win the title this season. <laughs> because the ones the season that Harry Kane comes over that maybe there's a Kane curse but I mean I, I agree with Jan I, I think that the removal of Kane from Tottenham has really taken the pressure off as I said it's a perfect storm really for Tottenham right there's the right coach coming in at the right time vacuum at the top end of the club which he can come in and fill massive amount of pressure taken off I watched Tottenham's last game obviously they played Crystal Palace and if I'm being completely honest with you, I didn't think Tottenham were terribly convincing. Palace were terrible, but I don't think that Tottenham were terribly convincing. I mean, Palace were playing Will Hughes as a second striker, which, you know, one illustrates the extent of Palace's injury problems. But I think also exemplifies, you know, this was peak Roy Hodgson. I think this was the moment uh, he can retire after that. So uh, I'm playing Will Hughes as a second striker. He really was just like, perfect Hodgson football. Sadly, because we're missing Eze and Alise and, and quite a few others as well, I mean, we just don't have any creative edge up front and it's just not working out for us. But I think on another day, that could have been a different result and Palace could have got something from that game. So I think it is important not to get too carried away and we know how things can change there. But I do think the way that Ange conducts himself is going to give him quite a lot of time. He's got quite a lot of goodwill and I think Spurs will respect the fact that he's trying to do what they want him to do, not just win games, but play 
the Tottenham way, in quotation marks, <laughs> whatever that is. Well, uh, Harry Kane probably should be looking over his shoulder because it won't be long before Bayern buy Max Beer as well, will it? Maximilian Bayer. Yes, yeah, no, that's a possibility. Or Sergei Gurassi, of course, as well. Gotcha. I mean, he could be another one. Last season's Bundesliga, the top scorer was Niklas Fulkrug of Werder Bremen, now of Borussia Dortmund and Christopher Nkunku on 16. Uh, <laughs> like, it's gone pretty crazy. I mean, but, you know, you've got Gurassi and Kane in double figures now. Opendar, I think it's approaching double figures. Victor Boniface at Leverkusen. It's a season for strikers. It's a, it, this, this season's Bundesliga is a lot of fun, it's got to be said objectively fun season that we're having mm. uh, over there in Germany. And there will be an objectively fun game on this weekend, won't there? Because it is De Classica, isn't it? It is De Classica. <laughs> That's going to be a barrel of laughs, that is, because both teams play pretty chaotic football. Neither are, are really at, at 100%, so there'll be plenty of misplaced passes, I think, lots of gaps to exploit and some goals to be scored. Hopefully we'll see Jamie Bino Gittins on there, so we'll have two English guys pitting it up each other again. It should be a barrel of laughs. That looking forward to uh, watching that and looking forward to previewing it as well on yes. the weekend box set. <laughs> well, yes, it will. That is the middle game on Saturday. It's the five thirty kickoff. This weekend box set is potentially going to be a Premier League free weekend box set. I've gone through there. I've picked seven games, and I thought I've not picked a Premier League game. And do you know what? I don't think I will. Because there is such good value in other games in there. The dubious value in the game immediately after Dortmund-Bayern, because I put Marseille-Lille in there. Uh, Terry, do you think this one's going to go ahead? You have to wonder. You wouldn't want to punish Lille by cancelling a game, but really you have to wonder whether or not there'll be any fans in that stadium after what happened. I'm sure listeners are aware Lyon's team bus was attacked uh, with significant injury to the coach and to uh, a number of players in the build-up to the uh, Marseille game against Lyon. And the game was abandoned. Uh, it never went ahead. So there's lots of questions about that. We might have to keep a close eye on that one. Yeah. Jan, Leicester leads on Friday night. Good bit of championship action. But as you said, Leeds should be pushing to go back to the Premier League, as should Leicester. Both would probably say if it wasn't for Everton's breaking of financial fair play, they wouldn't be in the championship anyway. It should be a good game though, yeah? Yeah, I, I think so. It's first against third. Leicester, if you just look at the stats, they look unstoppable. Sunderland played them last week and we took them close, only a 1-0. So, uh, you know, they are human. But, you know, Leeds should give them a good run for their money. I think that's going to be a cracker, really well. Championships full of cracking teams with, and there's always some cracking games in there. Um, I don't think that's going to be a stinker. I think that'll be pretty good. Yeah, that's your Friday night game. And also on Sunday, we've got some FA Cup action. It's the first round. So Charlton Athletic, local derby against Cray Valley Paper Mills. Uh, Terry, Yan, we've watched Cray Valley Paper Mills play at Church Road a few seasons back. They were in the same division as Whiteleaf, and now they're going to be playing at the Valley this weekend. What a wonderful day out for the Cray Valley fan. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, that, and that's it. Well... Well, it is. It's 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 you know, John's a great place to go and watch football. It is brilliant. It's a great ground, so why wouldn't they enjoy it? And that is what the FA Cup's about, isn't it? Of course. It is, yeah. Those opinions on Charlton Athletic expressed by Jan Bilton are his own and not necessarily shared by the rest of the podcast. <laughs> Well, if you want to see what we think of all those games, all those non-Premier League games that we're going to put in the box set this weekend, then get along to sofpodcast.com, click on the link for the weekend box set, and subscribe. 
Uh, just put your email address in the little box and it will be in your inbox on Friday lunchtime. And oh, no, I forgot to talk about the Ballon d'Or. Oh. Oh, uh, well. Oh, I didn't put Never that mind. In. Oh, never mind. Never mind. I'm sure I'm sure the best player in the world will win. Well, the best yes. players in the world will win. We can talk about that next week, I guess. Maybe not. We'll just leave it for other lesser podcasts to dissect. Uh, I think that's probably safest, isn't it? I think you're wise there, Graham. I think it was always ambitious for us to start taking on the Ballon d'Or. Our hearts just aren't in it. No, they're not really, are they? Who would you give it to anyway, Terry? Well, I'm a massive Jew Bellingham stan, so I yeah. think I'd give it to him. I'm assuming that eventually the, the people who, who make these decisions, who vote for them, will probably eventually give it to Jude Bellingham, but he probably has to win the Champions League first, which he will do. He is going to win a lot of Ballon d'Ors, yeah, I think, is. going forward, definitely. Yeah. There's there's no doubt about that. Uh, for me, there's only one winner, Jack Clark at Sunderland. He's been fantastic. If I'd had a little bit more time to think, I would have come up with something as as, as equally pithy and original than Jude Bellingham. But hats off to you, Yanis. Always grounding us when we need it. <laughs> <laughs> Ballon d'Or, what a pile of wank. Give it to Will Hughes, that's what I say. Will Hughes. Will well, Hughes, who's, you know, he's doing the hardest job in the world. Been a second strike for second for, striker for Roy Hodgson. Hardest yeah. job in the world, harder than being a fireman. <laughs> <laughs> well, listeners, you can clearly tell that's all we have time for this week. So, from me, Graham Sibley, from Jan Bilton, and from birthday boy Terry Devillain, it's goodbye. 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 You can contact us through our website, sofpodcast.com, via Twitter, at Sound of Football, or on facebook.com slash soundoffootball. Charlton in the boxer, eh? Yeah. When did that happen? Do you not like Charlton either? <laughs> Come on. <laughs> Come on. Ding, 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 ding. Oh, it's not that bad. Nice. Bang, 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 it's all right. Bang. I've been to Charlton a few times, and and I've and they've beaten us twice at Wembley, and they, I still think they're okay. But this is a Palace thing. It's a specifically parochial South London thing. At least Charlton and Palace can agree on one thing. Well, on three things: that South London is wonderful. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed, South London is beautiful for for for. for for two things that are unarguable and the other third thing, which is which is something that can be argued about depending on where you are. <laughs> and in case it gets into the Easter egg, I'm not saying what they are. I'm just not. <laughs> no, no. Do no, your own research, listeners. Do your own research. Yeah, do, yeah, Come to South right. London and do your own research. <laughs> yeah, but just know that it's wonderful. <laughs> for, 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 for something something else and Crystal Palace, that's what it's wonderful for. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm sure I can get an Easter egg out of that.